Rock and roll. Kia ora, everybody. What's up? It is Rebet. Welcome to Rebet Live. Another day, more action, more big brains joining joining around to share the love. And today we've got the bro, Ashley Church. How are you, mate? G'day, mate. Good, good. Uh, Here in my bubble in Wellington. Yep. Welly Bubble Mafia. So you're Welly um, Bubble, yeah. a former uh, CEO of the Property Institute. You've been a commentator on all things, I guess, real estate, and, and you've got a pretty wide skill set and, and expertise across a bunch of shit, actually. How would you describe you, yourself? Opinionated. <laughs> Is that, does that mean troll? Is that commercial troll? <laughs> oh, no, well, no, I hope not. I hope not. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I've, I'm, I'm 56, mate, so I've got 50, 50 or 45 years of experience in a whole range of stuff that I've got opinions on. Probably jack of all trades, master of none. There you go. That's my move. Mm. Um, how is property? <laughs> well, depends on who you are in the in the property. So, so residential property. Let's go. Um, let's go resi. How's resi? Yeah. So, so if you're uh, the owner of a property, um, I think you're probably reasonably safe. The measures that the government's put in place, and more particularly that the banks have put in place, to basically give you the opportunity to move to interest only or even defer payments for a period of up to six months, I think will probably mean that. Uh, that that part of the the property sector will get through relatively unscathed, provided this thing doesn't continue on for too long. Um, if you're a, a purchaser, a bit more difficult because that uh, and I've rabbited on about those LVR restrictions uh, for uh, a long time. That's even more difficult now if you've had your income, if you've still got a job and you've had your income reduced down to eighty percent. Um, even more difficult to get that deposit together and then get back to lend your money. If you're a property investor, a landlord. Uh, pretty scary times at the moment because mm. the the government, which which hates landlords anyway, um, has has put some some pretty difficult impositions on them with no support to compensate for that. So it's told uh, uh, property investors, for example, that if uh, uh, a tenant doesn't pay rent, they can't do anything about that for at least sixty days. Uh, obviously, if a tenant leaves, they can't replace that tenant currently. So while in the business sector and across a range of other businesses, there are support mechanisms in place for those things, there aren't for property investors. Uh, so that's going to have some pretty deleterious implications, I think, going forward. Oh, that's a good quick, quick surmise all just flipping, bang, straight to it. It's like, yep, this is what's going to happen. Yeah. So there's, it's, um, it's quite an interesting dynamic property because each each asset is chunky it is it is physical it is real it is it's not like a digital product which just goes out there it is the doors are shut dollars yep. are in and i think the first wave that happened within i think it was about 24 to 48 hours was the whole um is it the the auckland district law society adls uh, 27.5 something shit about uh I mean, you explain it better than me. I, I know what it is, but you have better pro wording because that felt like there was a first wave of like, okay, every single person that's in the lease, look at this thing because dot, dot, dot. How did that sort of roll out on your side that you saw? You're talking about the lease arrangements? Yeah. Or you're talking about the contract in itself because the, uh, the the Auckland District Law Society's contract, as people may or may not be aware, is actually the, the, the default template for the whole country. So even though it was oh, developed by that. the Auckland... Yeah, so even that was developed by the Auckland District Law Society basically used by, and I'm not sure if this figure is exactly correct, but something like 95% of all property transactions anywhere in New Zealand use that contract. And that's primarily because the Real Estate Institute kind of adopted it 40 odd years ago as their default template. Got it. And and it was the the clause that I, th I think it was 27.2 or something was about basically if you don't have access to the building to your to your lease, you potentially don't. Here we go. Uh, Kate Sheehan. Oh, trust you. 
the the lawyer to jump in here. Yep, CI twenty seven point five ADLS agreement. Thank you, Kate. You're so up on me, knows. Kate. Yeah, there you go. Um, about the on the on the commercial side. So, um, mm. oh, actually, we've got one more question here. Uh, James Terry says, uh, Rebecca, question for Ashley. Our landlord has been, from what I can see, one of the only ones in Auckland not willing to help out. Oh, any ideas on what to do? Oh. Um, so this is the person that's sending the message is actually the tenant. Uh, I, I'm guessing so. I think the first person they should do is probably talk to Kate Shan, who knows CI 27.5 ADLS. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, the answer, that, that's pretty disappointing. And I think, and, and I'm actually interested to hear them say the only, because that's probably correct. Most landlords have actually been pretty understanding of tenants, uh, the, the plight that tenants have. Um, and, and my advice over the last couple of weeks has been if you are finding yourself in some sort of difficulty, if you've lost your job, if you've had your income reduced, first point of reference should be to go to your, your, your landlord or your property manager. Um, and actually make that clear. And you'll find in most cases that, you know, most property investors in New Zealand and mum and dad investors, they're pretty reasonable people. Um, and you'll probably find that they're quite willing and happy to come to the party. And respect of those that don't, sadly, you're just going to have to wait this thing out, unfortunately. There's not a heck of a lot more you can do if the, if the landlord themselves isn't actually prepared to come to the party. Um, yeah, obviously, James, if sounds like they've been a dick, you should talk to a lawyer. A little bit. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> It also, what, maybe it's a, a good segue into you, you wonder when decision makers like that in, in commercial arrangements, they potentially don't realize the long tail of what happens with relationships. And like, like imagine if you're that guy and you're one of the only ones that just beats an absolute dick. It's like, do you not realize that people talk? Do you not realize there's social media? Do you not realize the world's shut down right now and you're choosing just to be an asshole? Like it's tough, yeah, although, right? and I hate to say this, but but in, in the residential space, it's more transactional, so it's probably not so big of an okay. issue. So so if you're in the, the commercial space, that's actually a really big deal because obviously you've, you've got a long-term lease relationship with your client and you want to make sure that both parties are happy. In the residential space, um, and I can't believe I'm saying this, but it's true, if your tenant goes, you just replace them with another one. Um, yep. and, and in the current market, and in, in fact, for the last couple of years, that's that's been a relatively easy thing to do. Um, but the reason that, that private landlords help people isn't because they're, they're relying on that relationship going forward. It's they're doing it because it's the right thing to do. That, that this is a difficult time for everybody, and we should all be working together to make sure that we, we support each other. And that's why mum and dad investors are getting in there and saying, hey, what can we do to help tenants to, to get through this time like the rest of us? Do you think there's going to be, um, like obviously um, with these restrictions, at, even at L3, you still can't view property, right? No. Uh, no, I think at L3 you can. I, I mean, I haven't seen the specifics. I, I, I read the article that you probably saw yesterday, Robin, mm. which indicated what's likely to happen, but there are some specifics in there, and that's one of them. I would be surprised if that aspect is still on, on, on lockdown. Um, but if it is, then yes, the, the continuing constraints is going to be, be a problem for as long as that, that, that the imposition's in place. Uh, but I, but I'd be really surprised if that wasn't, if once we get into level three, that you're not able to do that. Do you think the... Um maybe we we'll should go resi side for a sec if you're sure. if you're a house owner you potentially usually if you sell a house i imagine then you're going to be back in the market to buy one if you're right yes. now sitting on sitting on sitting on property and it's going to um and all the shit's going on are you and even in the spot that you'd want to cash up to then go back out in the market or if if you're fearful and you've got money that you've maybe saved for a you know you've got a hundred grants in there for a deposit or something I'm pretty sure right now you're probably going to be like, you know what? Maybe I should just keep this cash in the bank for a little bit now. Like, what's the headspace of residential buyers right now? You think? Yeah, good question. So, and you'll get a different answer on this depending on who you talk to. So, but here's my handle on it. 
So there's something called the, the property cycle in New Zealand. We've had, we've had four cycles. They're roughly 10 or 11 years in length. They start roughly 1980. They go right through to 2020. They're a little bit different in different parts of the country. Auckland enters, enters into a cycle, into an upward cycle earlier than the rest of the country, but it also comes out of it earlier. And in fact, Auckland had actually come out of the last cycle in 2016. So in answer to your question, um, if we come out of this thing as I expect and prices have stayed more or less consistent, in other words, if once we get out of this, if we look at the Auckland market and the rest of the country again and prices have pretty much held at the levels that they were at, um, then it shouldn't actually make much difference to the purchasing decision. If you were about to buy, get back into the market and do what you would have always done. If prices have dropped back a little bit as a seller, I would be suggesting that you wait a little while because they will okay. recover again, I think, pretty quickly. So if you're a seller, um, hang, hang in there for, for a little bit longer because I think after three or four months you'll find it. Because remember, everything in property is built on confidence. Everything, in, in particularly yeah. in a strong market, everything's built on confidence. So if prices have come back by four or five percent, I'd be saying, you know, if you've got the luxury of being able to wait, wait. If you're a buyer, probably a good time to get in, but the, the bargains that you're likely to get aren't going to be huge. You're not going to get, you know, 20, 30 percent of a property. You might get four or five percent less than you might have paid three yeah. or four months ago. So what about this next wave that people are talking about with the potential um, rise in um, unemployment that's that's about to hit after things yeah. come back? That's going to change the psyche of, of a lot as well. Is that going to make it better or worse for the resi, the resi side? There's a couple of arguments around that, and I guess it depends on which one you believe. So one argument is, and it's not just unemployment, there's a couple of things that will impact on, on the residential property sector. One of those is the departure over the next six to 12 months of, of um uh, work visa immigrants who've come into the country on short-term work visas who will have to leave, um, primarily in a market where there are fewer jobs, and so Kiwis, you would hope, will take more of those jobs. And the other one is the the idea that uh, Airbnb, which has been traditionally about providing accommodation to people that come in from overseas, um, that, that accommodation, because that, that market will no longer be there, will convert back to residential accommodation. And so that argument goes, both of those things will feed into the residential market, and therefore you will have more property available than was previously available in the theory, that might even push the price down. Um, the counterbalance to that is, yeah, so, and, and it is interesting. The counterbalance to that is if you look at the complexion and the makeup of who those people were, for example, in that work visa market, they weren't necessarily people who were um, renting individual dwellings. Often they were, they were groups of people. So, so even taking a larger number of them out of the market isn't necessarily going to free too much stock up. Same applies with the Airbnb. Um, you know, th th there, there was a reasonable number of those, but they weren't huge. So it really depends on once the whole market shakes down, seeing what that looks like, um, and then determining whether or not that means that there's going to be too much stock available, therefore prices should come down, uh, yeah. or whether or not they'll sit where they are at the moment. Um, or, and the counter argument is, in fact, rents might continue to go up. And the reason for that uh, is because with the impositions that are on landlords at the moment, if you've been a property investor who's bought a property in the last three or four years, and your property is what they call negatively geared, which means it costs you money to own, there's a possibility, of, particularly if you're mum and dad and you've had your income reduced by by 20%, that you might say, hey, this is all getting too hard for me. I'm going to sell this property and get out of the market. And that actually reduces supply. So you, you, you understand the point I'm making. There's a whole range of different factors that feed into this thing at the moment. And this it's really is... hard to get a picture on what that's all going to look like. Yeah, that's a funky corona butterfly effect of real estate shit. Hey, that's, a, that's, a funky, <laughs> that's like a flipping... But even that's that, one way of putting it, yeah. But, I mean, uh, not not that I'm uh, a paid uh, real estate commentator, but sure. Um, the Same. Airbnb, the, the, the Airbnb <laughs> one's interesting because you think about no one's going Airbnb and buying by the month as if it's a rental. It's groups of crew going somewhere, escaping, blah blah. The flip side yeah. to that would be if 
Kiwis want that escapism for short term to go out and do it, but then yep. if there if there's a lot high unemployment and they don't have as much disposable income, that's probably not going to be the play that they do. That, right. So then you think, okay, well if you take the overseas market out, tourists out, local tourists kind of out for the if Airbnb side, unless it's you know like a. Um, and even with often it's not so, mostly with family and whatever. yeah, but because even yeah. with that, if they're already in one family, I'm imagining with the restrictions it will actually change because if you can't go with a bunch of strangers together to, to to meet back up, so then that's probably gonna stop that as well. So if you take all that out, then you've got all these um, additional all, stock, all this additional stock, and they're gonna say, okay, well, shit, okay, we'll just chuck it back on. I guess they're going to have to because they're going to be like, some money's better than nothing, right? Mm-hmm. Stuff it. Or they they think about, okay, well, do we just flip it now? You're going to actually, might, there might be that other wave of all the Airbnb crew who want to stuff it. Let's flip it. Let's get some cash in the bank and let's let's cruise. It's another little thing, right? Smarter minds and mine are looking at this at the moment and, and, and looking at all these various different factors and determining what it all means. So, so all that stuff you just mentioned and I talked about before will all feed into it. What we don't know is how that will actually play out. Tell you what I can say with some certainty, though. Um, you know, because one of the things I'm hearing at the moment is, and, and you hear this every time that we get to the end of the cycle, the market's going to crash, there's going to be a massive drop in values. Um, one of the really interesting things is if you go back through those four cycles that I talked about, Robert, going back to 1980, at the end of each of those those cycles when the market flattened off, um, each of the the, the, the the periods of those booms, there was a different set of economic factors underlying the market. So if you go back to the 80s, you had high unemployment, which we're about to have again. Um, you had high interest, very high interest rates. In fact, you were paying up to 20% uh, on a mortgage. Um, you had uh, far fewer uh, uh, internationals coming into the country, and yet property doubled over that period in, in value, roughly doubled in value. If you go to the 90s, same thing, completely different set of factors again. Interest rates were starting to come down. Uh, we were getting a few more international arrivals, and yet property doubled in value again. Go flick forward to that period between say, 2008 and 2018, yep. same thing. Really low interest rates, really low inflation, much larger groups of internationals, property roughly doubled in value again. The point I'm making is that there's no consistent set of criteria that determine what makes a, mar- makes a market double. It just does. Now, that doesn't necessarily it's going to guarantee that it's going to happen going forward over the next 10 years, but you'd be... If you look at the, the experience of the last 40 years, I think for those 10-year cycles, you'd be reasonably safe, I think, to assume that something like that will happen again. So I'm reasonably bullish mm. in the medium to long term about the residential property market for that reason. Also, the other the other part to it will be this, the, the mental psyche of, of uh, homeowners that is their first or second house. How do you mean? Like... If, if it's just your pad and you're like, okay, you know, we just hold on. If I if we sell it now, we have to go back in the market. Or if it, you've got a, a spare batch or something somewhere that was Airbnb, then you're like, if if we're already safe with this one, stuff it. Maybe we need a, let's downsize a bit, unemployment's up. You know, they, they might be a big flog off of second or third homes for a bunch of crew, right? Because they'll keep the, those that have the same, the one, I don't know if, if you've got one, I'm imagining you'll probably maybe chill for a little bit. Just, yeah, I, I don't know. One yeah, investment properly? Yeah, so so yeah. the counter to that is is um, notwithstanding the point I made before about how difficult it is at the moment for property investors, but again, in that medium term, by medium term I mean over the next twelve to eighteen months, as long as interest rates stay low and as long as you've got your property on interest only, as most investors already do, um, that's probably not going to be as difficult as it might otherwise have been. Mm. So most of them will be able to sustain that. It's the the additional imposition at the moment is a situation where you can't recover rent basically that you've lost over this period of time, and that's going to put some people into some pretty hairy situations. Um, so so yeah, reasonably confident about that. The other thing to remember, of course, is that if you're a mum, if you're not an investor, if you're just a home occupier, 
and you're selling a property at the moment, you buy and sell in the same market. So, so if yeah. there is a, a slight difference in value, then that, that difference in value occurs on the other side of the equation as well, which means if you're buying for a little bit less, you're also selling for a little bit less and vice versa. What gets you most fearful about the residential market in New Zealand for the next, maybe let's say two years, because this is going to oh, roll for a bit. Strangely enough, it's actually not coronavirus. It's not COVID-19. I, I, provided this doesn't go on for too long, and by, by, by it, I mean the lockdown. As, as long as life starts to return to some form of normality over the next you know, few weeks and we start being able to live again and do the things that we would normally expect, then the market will do what the market's always done. I'm reasonably confident about that. The, the, and if you're a, a owner-occupier, um, you're going to be fine. The market's going to continue to do what it does. The two groups I'm concerned about are, A, property investors, because putting aside COVID-19, this government hates them. And, and, and it's been doing, I'm serious, it's been doing all sorts of things to punish them. And it's, and it's an envy-based ideology. It's got nothing to do with the economics of the market. It's been going on for the last two or three years. In fact, I see that, uh, that Parliament had basically decided it was going to suspend the work of select committees, with the exception of submissions on the uh, the fairly controversial changes to the Residential Tenancies Act. So, you know, that gives you some indication of where their ideology is at. The other group I'm really worried about are home buyers. Um, so young people are looking to buy a home, and, and part of that's around that uh, those LBR restrictions, that 20% deposit they're required to put together if they want to buy a home, and part of it's going to be the fact that if that was difficult for them before, it's now just become even more difficult for them in an, in an environment where we could have upwards of 10% unemployment and, and reduce wages and salaries in a market where house prices are obviously high relative to what those people can afford. Yeah, the home buying ones. How, how do you think banks are going to react or try and play nice with that? Thing oh, initially, the banks will be really conservative. The, yeah. the initial approach by banks basically will be to pull right back to to treat the eighty percent of income that people are earning at the moment as, as as the base income. So, so not to say as you might hope they would do. Look, we understand that you're actually on this income and that this is just temporary. I think they'll treat the eighty percent as the real income, which makes it that much more difficult. Um, and I think the appetite for lending will also be subdued simply because. Although I'm very bullish about property values, the banks won't be. I think the banks will be nervous about what might happen to values over the next few months, and so they'll be taking a bit of a wait-and-see approach. Um, the other thing, too, as I was reading the other day, is at the moment they've got their hands full just dealing with, with uh, clients coming to them and saying, hey, we need, we need assistance, we need support during this difficult time. Um, so they run off their feet just dealing with that, let alone going out there and seeking new business. Mm. Uh, actually, just go back before I ask that question. What do you think the driver is why the government hates the investors? It's an ideological thing, and if you go, we shouldn't be surprised by it. If you go back to the period prior to um, these guys coming into power, um, I mean, they were saying all this stuff for a long time. It's it's about it's a virtue signalling thing um, in respect of their support base, which is about basically saying that all of the problems of the market have been caused by property investors, which is nonsense. But that's the belief, that's the view, um, and that if property investors were out of the market, somehow house prices would miraculously drop and we'd all be able to afford to buy a house and sing kumbaya. Um, and Sounds and nice. on top of I know, well, it does. <laughs> if it so were what, true, what it would happened? be fantastic. Well, <laughs> sadly, it's not true. Um, and and the other aspect of it is this, this idea that property investors are, are, are you know greedy sort of capitalist boomers that are that are making a fortune um, on the back of the the, the, the plight of the, the, the poor old millennials, which again is just simply not true. And you know we don't have the time today, but there's some really interesting information on on how difficult it was to buy a property over the last forty years, um, and it takes into account cost of buying a home cost of servicing a mortgage, what salaries are now. And interestingly, the most difficult time taking all of those factors into account to buy a house was actually the late 80s when it used to cost 52% of a, 
uh, uh, the uh, median household income in New Zealand to actually afford to service a mortgage. That figure's come down to 30, 37%. It's actually lower now than it was 30 years ago. So it's not the boomers' fault? Well, it's partly the boomers' fault, but it's, it, it's also... Yeah, there are there are all sorts of different factors, and when I say the boomers' fault, it's not the boomers' fault in that they set out to screw the millennials. It's the boomers' fault in the sense that the the environment which confronted them at the time was conducive to them doing what they've done. The irony of that is, though, and I love making this point, um, uh, is if you're a millennial buying a property right now, and I've seen this so many times to recognise that it's a thing. You go into the option room with your partner, and you've got your loan approval, and you put your hand up, and you miss out and you do it again, and you miss out again, and you start thinking the system's working against you, and that it's all designed to conspire against millennials, and you're never going to be able to buy a home. And then somewhere along the way in that process, you actually get one. You go to an auction, and you put your hand up, and you actually win that auction. Suddenly, on a coin, your whole worldview changes. You love capital growth. You love the fact that properties go up in value, and the reason for that is because it's yours. Yeah. So your perspective and your worldview is very much relative to where you are in that equation. That's an interesting one. I that I remember right when Corona started, these memes were coming around saying, you know, ten times more the amount of people die every day from starvation, but we're not acting the same. But then now all of a sudden, I guess you know that the story was now that it's affecting you, now you care. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, that's, it's, that's, that's human nature. I mean, we all do that. Um, and it's interesting because at the beginning of this thing too, and you, you know, you're referring to it with the memes, and I was probably guilty of this. I think we had SARS a couple of years ago. We've had some of these other. Things that have, that have sort of been news stories in the early stages, and then they haven't panned out, and we go, well, that, you know, that didn't happen. And then this came up, and I think there was probably a bit of a tendency to think this was going to be the same. Um, and it's only as it's developed. Um, and and there, was a, there was a pretty strong school of thought, Robert, early on, too, that, that um, uh, even though this thing obviously was killing people, that it wasn't killing people to any degree that was greater than a normal influenza would in any given year. I think what's happened to disavow us of that view more recently is that the difference here is that the mortality rate's a lot higher. So yes, the flu does kill a lot of people, and in fact, probably overall, the flu kills more people, but the mortality rate on the flu, I think, is something like 0.2%. Mortality rate on this, if you look at the international track, is about 7%. That's much higher. So even though it's affecting lower numbers of people, more people die of it. Um, so, you know, we need, we need to take it seriously. The um, before you're talking about the the investor side of these boomers, how much of a battle of it has been from public perception from the resi side around buying and flipping, whatever boomers versus overseas money? Oh, not much at all. So interesting. So another one of these these uh, virtue signalling policies that came out of, the, of this government was around the impact of foreign buyers, and you'll remember that back in I think 2015. Phil Twyford um, did that exercise where he basically counted up foreign-sounding names um, and came back and said that 30% of all properties in Auckland were owned by foreigners, which was just nonsense. You actually yeah. analyse that and look who those people were, and they were Asian names, by the way, so he was focused on the A lot of Kiwis. One, Zena, Zena, yeah, a lot of them are Kiwis. A lot of them born here, um, or if they weren't born here and naturalised or, or, or citizens of this country. Anyway, so on the back of that, the national government went away and said, OK, we need to find out whether this is true or not. And they, put the, they got the stats department to put together a foreign buyer's register. And the register came back after about six months and said 3% of all property purchases in New Zealand are by foreigners. Now, there was an outrage and an uproar from, from the left who basically said that's nonsense. Those figures don't take into account trusts, people buying on behalf of foreign buyers. So even if you fudged that and said, OK, it's not 3%, it's 6%, it still wasn't the 25 to 30% that was being claimed. Now, what was interesting was, so, so Labor ignored that and put in place the foreign buyers ban anyway. And about nine months ago, and you might remember this, um, uh, Sats came out with a report that basically said, yep, uh, that, that, that it was still 3%. And then there was a headline that came out from the Herald that said, 
81% of, of foreign buyers had disappeared from the market as a result of uh, the foreign buyers ban, which sounds like an extraordinary figure. 81% of, of, yeah. of foreign buyers had disappeared it, until you drilled down and you realized it was 81% to 3%. It was about 2.5% of the total market. It was nothing. Yeah, so, so it simply hasn't made any difference. Um, to the extent that house prices have gone up as a result of, of, of uh, uh, investors, and I don't believe that links as strong as it's made out to be, that's New Zealanders. That's not foreign buyers, that's New Zealanders. That's people who've gone into auction rooms and put their hands up. And the reason they've done that, it's not because they're trying to screw the market. They've done that because money's cheaper. So between 1980 and now, the one consistent uh, aspect of that market is that the cost of money has continued to come down. Yep. So you can buy more with your money now because it's cheaper than you could have bought even 10 years ago. And that's pushed, that's helped. It's not the only reason, but that's helped to push uh, house prices up. Do you think banks, if they've been going to be conservative, they're clearly not going to be like, all right, only 5% down and just pay the interest for the next five years. It'll be sweet. Like they're not going to do any crazy shit for that side. Surely, well, right? funny, you say, it's funny you describe it as crazy because that's a effectively exactly what they were doing up until about six or seven years ago. So prior to the imposition of the Reserve Bank um, uh, loan-to-value ratios, in fact, the banks basically made the determination themselves on what the deposit was. And, and under certain circumstances, you could buy a house with a 5% deposit, or even in some circumstances, you could buy a house with no deposit. And that all came down to whether the bank decided you were a reasonable credit risk and that would sustainable household income and what was going to be the income off the property itself. And look, they've been doing that for a long time. The market didn't crash as a result of that. The market market worked perfectly fine. Property values continue to increase. So this narrative that the Reserve Bank has been putting out there that somehow they're making the market stable simply isn't backed up by the history of the facts over the last 40 years. Would the bank want to do that, though, or no? Oh, the, well, I think the banks would, the, the banks had an appetite for it because they wanted to lend. And it was would another they want to do it do now? So. They wouldn't want to do it now. Um, but right now, possibly no. In six months' time, yeah, probably. Could be, because it was, as I say, it, was, it wasn't a, an unusual thing. That had been going on for a long time. And they, fo they focus on the, they focus on the businesses right now for the extra cash to get people working, and then they'll go to sure. the, the, the the accommodation side. Makes sure. sense. Sure. Although 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 the profile of all the banks is, I, I think, is that the majority of, of lending from I'm pretty sure I'm right in saying this, and all of the, all, all of the main trading banks is in, is in the mortgage market. Um, so that's where they, that's their their bread and butter. That's where their main income comes from. Yep, I get it. Um, got a oh, actually, Kate's just jumped back in. Um, is that Hello, what, Kate. Is that uh, why Ashley thinks? The government excluded property investors um, from the government back loan scheme. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes. Kate, it is. Yes, yeah, yes. yes it is. It's, it's, it's ideological. Plus, which in terms of messaging to their supporters, that would be a that would be that's not a message that they would want to indicate. Having having just gone through all of these 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 exercises to punish property investors, to now go out and say we're going to help the old poor old property investor and keep them keep them afloat, I think would be would be anathema to their support base, and therefore they're not likely to do it. Yep. It's the the power of the people. Where, what the the sentiment is a, such a powerful thing. It's an intangible. Uh, it's it's such a it's a weird one. eh? like the feeling of people, which you can't actually write down anywhere, changes so much just how people feel. And they talk about yeah, business and, not being personal, and it's like, well, if the sentiment's that, then they're going to change all these rules, which is worth hundreds of billions of dollars to New Zealand. But if we don't feel like it, or you know, I think you're virtual signaling and whatever, yada yada, you know. <laughs> A section of society. I don't. I don't think it's fair to say everybody feels that way. In fact, sixty percent, sixty-two percent of Kiwis actually own their own home, and I suspect it would be true to say that for most of those people, they actually think property is a pretty good thing. I think that 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 uh, market that I'm referring to, that that Labour virtue signals to, tends to be renters, and it tends to be people who are at the 
probably at the beginning of their working lives and for who this is all too hard and they see that as you know the nasty evil property investor who's taking away their, their life's opportunity interestingly those people change in their attitudes people become t t generally not not completely but generally people become more conservative as they get older and and that impacts on their view of the economy and how things should work it has to do with having kids and getting into long-term relationships and, and taking on additional responsibility i think I think you summed it perfectly. As soon as that, that coin flips and they get the win, yeah. they, their shit changes quick, fast. Like, Absolutely. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Absolutely. <laughs> Capital growth's wonderful. Let's have more of it. <laughs> um, uh, Scott, uh, Koto, my mum is about to sell her rural property and buy land to build. Should she renegotiate her land deal and would you see building costs changing? Oh, it's a, it's a pretty specific thing. We're not, I don't know if you're going to yeah, get the exact I, I mean, advice, I can answer that in general terms. I wouldn't, wouldn't see building costs changing and if they do, they might go up. Um, Why would it go up? Sorry. Well, only in the sense that the market's going to be smaller for a while, and therefore, in order to, to, to for a business to continue to make money, it's going to need to basically cut its to, to, to get its income from somewhere. Um, renegotiate the contract if, if she's got the opportunity to. Sure, have a crack. Um, if, if that contract's unconditional and signed, then she, that that opportunity may not exist. Um, but uh, yeah, you know that that opportunity. Because that's quite a specific question. I probably need to know a little bit more about yep. the deal. Um, would there be certain landowners right now that the potential owners of it don't actually realize they might actually be in some hardship and actually might want the deal to get done quick and might potentially take less and might you never know what the other side's thinking or, or potentially what their what their position is right yeah it is and i mean to extrapolate that out further just going beyond property and looking at the economy in general i think that's true of lots of enterprises i think there are businesses at the moment that have probably come through the last three or four weeks okay and and you know maybe have, have tapped into the subsidy and you know at the moment cash flow is looking okay who simply haven't had the opportunity yet to look over the precipice and actually see what things are going to look like in, in six months' time. And that's the great unknown about all this. Conversely, I think there's going to be some businesses that will rebound pretty quickly. Um, I think the retail sector, once it's allowed to get out again um, and actually start trading, will be all right. Um, because while we might be talking 10% unemployment, that still means 90% of your income's earning an income. So I think retail will probably be okay, cafes, restaurants. Um, but other Just aspects... The, the distancing, though, that... Like I know a lot of as long as for as long as that continues, that's going to be yep. difficult. But let's assume that that's going to come off at some stage over the next four or five weeks, and that life returns to some degree of normality. So I'm talking more not the next couple of weeks, but more in you know in, in the medium to longer term. I think that should be all right. Um, uh, some aspects of the export economy, uh, some aspects, no problem, Scott. Um, some aspects of uh, the manufacturing economy, I think, will be okay. Conversely, uh, tourism. Basically, that's that's an industry that's going to be pretty much wiped out for a couple of years, unfortunately. And there's some there's some very innovative operators out there who are going to be upon some hard times for a while. Yeah, we uh, we had uh, Tim Alp on the show yesterday, CEO of uh, Juicy Group, and saying yep. you know that they've had a you know over ninety percent loss of revenue instantly within you know. And we had um, Rob yeah. Campbell on, and he's also on the chair of uh, THL Holdings. Obviously, they've got yes, all the tourism yeah. um, stuff as well. Um, what an industry that is right now. How do you, how do you, and obviously the thinking is clearly hyper-local, local, regional, national, national, international, get it as it stages yep. out. But the, those big drivers that are going to try to get Kiwis moving within New Zealand for New Zealand to, to see New Zealand is going to be so massive because, you know, I, I, the numbers are out that I think it's, you know, our biggest export or one of our biggest things is, is tourism, right? Like it's, um, yeah, it's so a that, big that, um, I agree. So that, uh, that local tourism thing. So that campaign, you probably had this referred to already, but that uh, campaign from back in the eighties called don't leave home till you've seen the country. 
Um, it's, it's kind of a reversion to that. The problem with that, and, and I think that's great, and I think that is going to happen, and people will start going to places that they've never been before with, within their own country. The problem with that, of course, is it's not going to replace the income that, that internationals will bring in. One, because the numbers won't be the, the equivalent of the numbers of international physicists we were getting, but two, because Kiwis don't spend at anything like yeah, yeah. the same level as internationals do. So it will give some repost to the market. It will give some um, assistance to the market, but it's not going to be enough to make the difference. Um, and that's quite scary because that's a really important sector for us. So I see there was talk yesterday about potentially having a bubble that covers both Australia and New Zealand. That would be helpful yeah. um, because that would mean that, that Aussies, who I think are one of our largest uh, international tourist groups anyway, would be able to come back into the country. Especially um, winters, but, yeah. Absolutely. But we, we need to get those doors open as quickly as we can. Yeah. Um, speaking of down south, uh, two-year view on the Queenstown Wanaka market. Obviously, the Resi side without well, Cadrona is a Wanaka is an interesting one because right now, coming into you know like years ago, you'd have to be down there in April or May to get your house for the winter. Um, yeah, and then obviously without knowing, I guess what's going on, they're in a pretty funky spot. So it sounds like it's quite quiet down there. What's your buzz? So I deal with two things: residential uh, values and and the um, uh, the rental market. Rental first. Rentals, I think you're not going to have too much trouble getting uh, a rental accommodation in the medium term because uh, obviously internationals will be leaving, and that's and no Airbnbs and no Airbnbs. Yes, so so I think that's probably going to be a lot easier than it's been for a long time, and that may also have an impact moderating any increases in, in rentals and may even drop them to some degree, particularly in that market. Um, in terms of values, uh, that will depend. Um, so, so the values are to do with Kiwis that live here. The, 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 the unknown is to what degree the people that own properties there rely on the local income basically to survive in terms of employment. If that has a major impact and we see mass unemployment in, in, in Queenstown or, or higher unemployment than we do in other parts of the country, that may have a knock-on impact into the values of properties in the Queenstown area. If it's around that sort of 10% or less, I wouldn't imagine values would be affected to any great degree. But no one knows, and, and we won't know until this thing plays out over the next few months. Do you think there'll be, um, if a bunch of different service-based businesses go under after this and they're not taking those leases out or they can't sustain the, those um, the lease payments to, to, to commercial landowners or, or landowners, and then they get stuck up. Do you think there's going to be potential a bunch of roll-ups potentially happening in the in the commercial real estate side? In terms of businesses going under? Yeah, oh, for, for, but for the buildings themselves, because if building if if there's a bunch of debt still owed on it, like how do you think that's going to? Where's the headspace of landowners going to go through in this next little bit? What do you think they're worried about? Yeah, so so I guess the, for me the question there then is what's the knock-on effect of this because it's not just it's it, as you say it's not just the retailer or the business that, that leases the premises it's the owner of that building what does that mean you know do you end up with with empty buildings and if you do what does that mean for the local economy and what does it mean for for the sustainability and the survival of the owners of those buildings and again those are the unknowns I mean how far does that knock on those people also it's it's not just about the owners of those buildings it's about the services that they engage they engage cleaners. Um, you know, tradesmen to, 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 to provide maintenance on those buildings. So the knock-on impact is is dramatic, and I think that's still being worked through both in terms of treasuries, figures, and what sort of support packages might be put in place. And again, it's a bit like the retail, the the um, uh, residential economy. Ultimately, it relies on confidence. Once we get back to some form of normality, it then relies on confidence, and it re and it relies on the on the preparedness of people to say, okay. I'm prepared to sort of, you know, the, the hurricane's passed. I'm, I'm going to lift my, the lid on my shelter and actually have a look and see whether I can go out and, you know, start doing things again. Um, and it's a question. Confidence will return. I don't think there's any doubt of that. It's a question of how long it takes for that confidence to return to the market. What are some other 
strategies that governments that the government could or should be thinking about to try and increase um, Kiwi confidence in in, in the markets? What, I, what I do they do? The what levers do they pull? The, the concern I've got, and I can't give you a specific answer on that, but I can give you a general one. I think the concern I've got at the moment is, and this is this was typical of a Labour government, lots of focus on support, which is great. Lots of focus on support and getting people through. What we need, though, and I don't know whether these guys have got the ability to do this, and this is where I've got a real issue, what we need is a cohesive economic plan. We need a strategy that says this is where we need to be in three or four years' time, and this is how we're going to get there. So, what we, so the two sides of the equation are how do we support people through tough times? And, and I think these guys have done a reasonable job of that. And, you know, there's, there's, there's some initiatives being put in place even this week to, to try and do what we can to continue to make sure that people survive through this period. But that's not enough. The other side of that equation is what do we do to get back to the promised land? How do we actually get there? And, and, I, and I, I'm concerned that these guys don't have the ability to do that because it's not their playbook. In a, in a very simple um, way, is it, is it kind of the same mentality of, you know, um, if you're talking about a lot of support, it's like you know, give a man a fish for the day, teach a man. Sort of thing. So, like, do yeah. you think there's do you think there's a little bit of that? There's a lot of fish to... giving. There's not yeah. a lot of teaching. So at the moment, there's a lot That's of giving fish. Way. Yeah, and so and so when you look at the impact of that on the economy, and don't get me wrong, I don't think they had any alternative. But the impact of that on the economy over the next decade or two decades is going to be absolutely huure The deferred debt and the the generational debt that's going to be passed on is going to be massive, and that's okay provided you can actually see a way out of this and you can see how you're going to get back to where we were before or potentially better. And at the moment, I'm not seeing any indication that there's any sense of understanding around that. Lots around the support, teaching, which is, yeah. yeah, lots lots of Labour stuff, not much around not much around the teaching, as you say, the, about what the we're then what. But if you if you threw the, all that out too soon, wouldn't that just freak people out to be too much info? Like, I, I guess... Yeah, the, that's fair. The, the, I guess, like, the... Because it feels that... It, it's very much everyone's in reactionary mode like oh shit it's like okay what's that next thing it's like cool every day at one she's gonna tell me this boom okay but i mean surely they got to think about it so, i mean how would you say so, say if you were going down the the route of you know teach a man to fish what what levers do you pull at a government level to help um tr transition or, or build and grow from from ground zero like what what what, what kind of things can you do like how does, how does that look what does that look like especially if it's just local without potentially trade or tourism right yeah, so I'm a, I'm a big believer in the innovation of Kiwi entrepreneurs. I think Kiwis are actually remarkable people when it comes to entrepreneurship, absolutely. Um, and so a, a big part of it is actually getting out of their way. So, so a good government in times of growth says, what can we do to reduce the size of government? It doesn't say, how can we make government bigger? It says, what can we do to reduce the size of government? Yes, we've got these support mechanisms that might have a sort of a twilight to them that, that have to stay in place for a while. But apart from that, how can we remove the obstacles to actually getting businesses back on their feet as quickly as possible? So that actually might include things like reducing the impositions, things like the Resource Management Act, looking at legislation, looking at the tax structure and saying, how can we make this? Look, it's possible, and I, and I don't think these guys are the guys to do it, but it, it would be entirely possible to come out of this a stronger country commercially, a stronger country economically than we, went, we were before we went into it if we took the opportunity that this thing provided and said, what could we actually do to reduce the obstacles to, to, to doing business in this country? And that's the bit I'm, I'm concerned that we're not going to get right. I think what we're likely to see is just the opposite. We're likely to see the government getting in boots and all, picking winners, starting to invest more into sectors that it thinks they're going to succeed. None of those things have worked in the past, and I suspect they're not going to work in the future. I don't know much about politics, and I, I, I stay I stay clear, but it, it seems very clear that you might, you might not vote for Labour when it comes to the commercial <laughs> policies. <laughs> Just a hint. I'm, 
Just well, a hint. Sorry, the injuries that that makes you fear, but, I, but I'm actually a socialist, and I'm a socialist in the sense that I I'm a really big believer that the bottom, that the most vulnerable in your society need to be protected. So yes. so a, a decent society says, let's say it's ten percent. What do you do for the ten percent? How do you house them? How do you make sure they've got adequate income? How do you make sure that they're healthy? How do you make sure that they're educated? The difference between me, so it's not about the aspiration or the outcome. It's about how you get there. And so my view is you do that using market mechanisms. You make your country wealthier so that you've actually got money to support those people. You don't do it by this sort of socialist approach that says, hey, let's just throw money at everything and hope that it works. It's, um, I've been – I had a bit of a revelation two days ago when I saw the, um, the, the spinoff did – I mean, you, probably, you might have read it. The spinoff did a article – that was a screen grab of all the different media leaders in New Zealand on the call with the government. And they all had to have their piece talking about media in New Zealand. And it's got the quotes from everyone. It's like so good. Basically they're saying, you know, someone handout, someone this, that, blah, blah. And then I was just thinking, I was like, okay, you know, obviously media needs some support. I get that. This, you know, just make sure that it's done for the reasons of that. It's a sound business model, not just giving someone a lifeline with a shit model. that's going to die anyway, separate conversation. Yeah. But then I thought, well, wait a second, we need media. Okay. Well, if, Tourism is one of our biggest exports, and seventy percent or fifty percent of these mum and pop tourism shops go go under. Does the government then go and save tourism? Does the government then go and save the housing? Does the government go and, and exactly prior to your question, I was like, man, at what point do you, where do you draw the line of who you help and who you don't? Because you know that there's going to be all these other different industries and verticals, or the hospitality, or dot 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 dot. Everyone's coming out being like, help us, help us, and there's surely going to be. I mean, I don't know how this things work, but I can imagine they say, okay, we're going to do this, 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 and that we don't. So they are going to pick, it's like they're going to pick kids, right? It's pretty tough. The problem with that too, of course, there's no easy answer to it. And, and everybody you talk to is going to have a different view. Um, and so, you know, who do, who, do, who do you save and who don't you? It's the old lifeboat thing from the 80s, you know, the sort of the, 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 um, the, the determining who's worthy of saving and who's not. I kind of get the media one. Um, and and I, I accept what you're saying about you know media is changing and the whole you know the, the whole basis upon which information is delivered now is different to what it was you know 15 years ago, but I kind of get it in the sense that in the now, got to make sure that those organs of information still survive. Um, but you're right. If if you're going to do it for media, why wouldn't you do it for the farming sector? Why wouldn't you do it for the tourism sector? Why wouldn't yeah. you do it for the manufacturing sector? And so that's the problem you've got. Once you set a precedent, how far do you take that precedent? And that's the big issue that. Robertson's going to be grappling with right now. Yeah. So, you know, maybe if we, I'm a very, I have a very small brain. I think of things simply, but same, if you thought same, about man. the idea of, you know, give a man a fish, teach a man a fish. If I go, okay, right now, is it going to be better for our dollars to play the support game for a bunch? Or to your point before, if we know that we've lost all this tourism cash, even if there's going to be localized stuff, it won't be at the same levels. Maybe the question is, how do we, how can we further, um, accelerate uh, business to get New Zealand back in business, but then make things easier for business to create and do business, not only in New Zealand, but the world, right? Like that, that feels like that might be the teacher man clear, is actually making clear leadership, clear yep. leadership. So very clear leadership accompanied by a very, very clear vision and an outline of, of what it is that we're, we're aspiring to achieve. And, and in, in respect of what I'm talking about, I don't think we've got that at the moment. That, that we've got leadership, which is great in that, that sort of socialist, welfare sense. We don't have clear business leadership. Uh, a clear plan, 
um, and the removal of as many obstacles as possible to allow, to allow and enable people to, to get back into that entrepreneurial space and start doing the things that Kiwis do well as quickly as possible, coupled with only to the degree that it continues to be required, support from the state during this really difficult time. Do those four things, we could actually get out of this. I mean, if you look at, you know, and I'm not, this isn't necessarily the best example because there were different factors at play. But if you look at where Singapore was in the 1970s, it was a country that New Zealand used to give foreign aid to. We used to basically provide them with food and money. Um, they're now one of the wealthiest nations in the world per, per capita um, and an extraordinary nation in respect of how they trade. And they did that because they had a very, very clear idea of where they were going. Now, admittedly, they did that under a sort of a, a benevolent um, form of, of dictatorship, <laughs> which we wouldn't want. Um, but it's the other aspects of that plan that actually worked really well for them. There's no reason why New Zealand couldn't be in that same space. Yeah, the 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 back in business. It's um, I had this. I put uh, working on this next little piece, and I put it as the hashtag back in business. Um, like what's going to happen, how it works. I'm I'm interested to see who who does what with it. But one thing I I've said multiple times now is I really hope that the problems that we now have don't try to get solved by ten thousand people in their own bubble trying to do the same thing. Yeah, that one thing is just. Totally, it's like New Zealand. When I look at the New Zealand charity landscape, it gets yeah. me so frustrated when yeah. I see thousands and thousands and thousands of people doing the same shit. It's like, guys, yeah, pause yeah. and competing with each other, which is crazy. And That's we do stuff nuts. by committee too. We're a nation of committees. I think it comes from our pommy roots. But uh, you know, I've been involved with a lot of uh, um, non-profit organisations in the past, and New Zealanders love their committees. They love this idea of talking and collaborating, and not much gets done. Um, whereas it's the single innovators, it's the you know it's the Sam Morgans, it's 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 guys renegade that, shit, absolutely who actually get out there and do stuff. That's where the real change takes place. And what we need to be doing is to be moving aside to make it as easy as possible for those guys and those women to actually make those big changes and get stuff happening. See, I I mess with that because I think I think you're right though because if if it's if it's a mindset of consistent support that does this to the bank account. If it's the encouragement for the for for the um, for those young bucks and the hustlers and the entrepreneurs or startups, small businesses, whatever, that's going to build back up because net net, yeah, I get it. Um, Selena Vitale says, uh, "Good info on the Kiwi market. Any insight on Australia?" Property market? No, I'm, I don't plan to be any sort of um, expert on the property market at all. It is, except to say that it's different to ours. Um, New Zealand market is, um, and this is quite an arrogant thing to say, but I'm going to say it anyway, the New Zealand market is probably the safest market in the world when it comes to residential property. Um, and I say that based on the history of what's happened to it over the last 40 years relative to other markets around the world, the UK, Ireland, Australia, um, the, the United States, where you've had quite significant falls. And the only thing I can put that down to, I've been asked in the past why that's the case. I have a theory, I don't know if this is true, but back in the, the late 70s and early 80s, Bob Jones, who some people will remember now, Sir Bob Jones was, was, was getting around the country teaching people how to do property investment. Um, and thousands of people went through his various different seminars that he ran and read his books. Um, and I think that that basically created a counterculture in this country of people that became more proficient in property investment than most other countries in the world. And Blame that Bob. coupled with the fact that we, yeah, yeah, and, the, and that coupled with the fact that we don't have deep capital markets, therefore the only thing of significance that your average Kiwi punter could get into was property created this whole sort of environment where where lots of Kiwis understand property really well. And the and, and when the market flattens as it does, cyclically, periodically, they don't rush off and panic and start selling. They just hang on to it for, for the next three or four years until the market picks up again. So the combination of those two things has kept our market pretty stable. Australia's a bit different. They haven't had that same sort of uh, cultural revolution uh, over there. 
Um, and as a result of that, there are more fluctuations when their markets are flatter. Mm. Especially, obviously, with um, other different bits and pieces to the ecosystem, like the mining stuff and yada, yada, yada. Absolutely, which which is much more cyclic. Here, you're right. mm. uh, Bradley mm. says, uh, Kia ora team, keen to know what you think property ownership will look like over the next decade. Um, so there's nothing to me to indicate it was. So, so I actually did some stats on this. I, I, I wrote a, an article about it six or seven months ago, and it was based on the presumption that I had, and I think most Kiwis had, was that home ownership rates had been coming down, and that at some sort of nirvana period 30, 40, 50 years, years ago, more Kiwis owned their own home. When I actually had to look at the stats, I was completely disavowed of that view. If you go right back to 1916 and then 1926, from 1926 onward, um, the rate of home ownership in this country has been somewhere around 60 to 62%. It's been remarkably consistent to that figure for almost 100 years, with the only exception being it got up to about 73% in the early 90s. And there's a whole range of reasons for that that I won't bore you with. So uh, based it's because we have a good All Blacks team. That's why. Well, <laughs> good. yeah, I, very simple. Confidence was high. No, confidence yeah. was high. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so based on that experience in the last hundred years, I don't see, see anything to suggest that that figure of sixty percent will change much over the next ten or twenty years. That also means, conversely, that forty percent of the population at any given time is going to need to uh, rental accommodation. That's good. Um, mm. Good yarns. Uh, last one. Mm. Last question before we go. Uh, Maureen no Crampton says, uh, uh, "Thanks, Ashley. Your thoughts on." Co-ownership, please. Did I just ask you that? No. Might it help solve some of the issues we're seeing? Yeah, co-ownership is an interesting model. I haven't actually seen something. I haven't seen a model put forward on co-ownership yet, which has convinced me that it's a workable model economically because there's all sorts of issues around if you get into strife with the other co-owners, how does that work in terms of sort of dismantling it and, and making sure that everybody gets their share out of it. But conceptually, it's actually a really good idea, but it needs to be developed commercially in a way that actually makes sense that people will have the confidence to buy into it. Physical marriage. Bricks and mortar marriage. There is that. There is, mm. Are you putting that as a question? Or no, no, no. Like I was saying, <laughs> not, not, but bricks and mortar marriage is like you're going into it. It's like it is yours. It's going to be. A, it's yeah, a. Yeah. It's a thing. You, you're. You're not even making. Well, a well in fact, it's that's a really there. good example. That's actually a really good example because just within a marriage, when marriages break up, you see the the, the issues that are that arise just as a result of two people who supposedly loved each other. Imagine how worse that would be with three or four or five people that owned a property that didn't actually have any sort of. Um, uh, intimate relationship. It's just a, simply a collegial and a legal one. It's 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 a, it's a difficult area to get into, but I think it could be resolved. Oh, that's good. Any is there a ninja move in residential real estate which you'd love to see happen if New Zealand was brave enough right now? Oh, yeah, there is, and it won't happen. Um, and that is, <laughs> is that because Labor's <laughs> in power? I didn't get the hint. Yes. <laughs> although, although National won't do this either. Okay, go. Is, is to educate every kid in the country on how to invest in residential property as part of our, our, our education to make sure that when kids come out of school, they absolutely understand how property works and how money works and how capital growth works. And, and they have the tools at their fingertips, not only to understand that, but to actually be able to put it into action and understand how important it is. Um, but Jones was talking about that 40 years ago. And we, high school we bob. Done it. We need a high, high school, school bob. bob. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are schools I suspect that probably do that at a, at a sort of a, a special interest level, but it's but it's not. Hard but he had weight though. He had be. brand. He had pull. He didn't then. He, had... he didn't then. Really? No, in fact, this is yeah. This is how he developed his brand. In fact, ah. when he was first writing in books, uh, he he was. I wouldn't say he was a nobody, but he was uh, he he was best known in those days for. Um, putting Carmen up, if you remember Carmen, the, the, the very um, uh, famous transvestite in Wellington for putting Carmel up at the mayoralty of Wellington in the mid-70s. That was his big thing. Um, and, There's a uh, decade before I was born, dude. I'm like, there you go. I'm there trying you to go. play catch-up. Carmen, Carmen, then, Carmen then up the sticks and went off to Sydney after that. 
Um, but uh, so that was his thing. And then he wrote a couple of books and he sort of built his notoriety on that. Now, of course, he's a household name, but he wasn't in those days. Yeah. Um, we've got to um, wrap, it, wrap it up here. But before you go, sure. I've got I've got a confession to make, actually. I've been really trying to get this off my chest for a couple of years now. And I actually, I think I told you in person, actually, but maybe I, I t- maybe I need to just t- say it again. So four years ago, three years ago, whatever it was, LinkedIn rang me. Did I tell you the story? No, tell me. Oh, you're going to love it. You're going to love it. Okay. Fascinating. I feel, I feel that I've, I've, it's t- I'm, I, this is a moment of truth for me. I'm going to I'm gonna share, share the thing. So yeah, link- you want to lie down when you tell me this? Or? No, this is, I've no, been waiting right. to tell you. I've been waiting for this. I've been really excited because I've been wanting to talk about it. Okay. <laughs> so LinkedIn rang me and yep. they said, hey, Robert, um, uh, we've been going through some stuff, ga 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 ga, yada yada yada. Um, we've worked out you're the um, uh, you're the top three most uh, influential New Zealanders on LinkedIn. And my first question, I was like, this is probably th- four, three, four years ago. I was like, who's number one? That's all I said. I was like, who's number one? And they go, oh, well, we can't, you know, can't really, can't really say. It's like, who's number one? And they go, ah, oh, someone in you know a, a property. I was like, who is it? He's like Ashley Church. I was like, stuff that guy. And then literally. <laughs> I hadn't ever met you. I'd seen you. I was like, stuff Ashley Church. And then I got, I went to the, um, and then uh, MBR, Andrew Patterson uh, interviewed me on the MBR show. And in, in one of my rants in it, somehow, then and then I said, at the end of it, like, stuff you, Ashley Church. I'm coming for you. <laughs> but then we, but then we'd meet, we, we finally got to meet up after. It was so funny. And I just felt like yeah, such yeah, a competitive yeah. prick. Cause it's like, <laughs> That's how my brain goes. I'm just like, I have to just like compete and go and thing. So it's good that we're friends now because I've been waiting to tell you that for a long time. Well, I, think, I think we also worked out that somewhere way back we're actually related Cousies. as well. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So, so uh, it's a family thing, mate. So, <laughs> so yeah, the, our, our lineage is now one and two. We're good. That's right. That's right. Um, but no, I appreciate your time, brother. Um, if people want to check out, welcome. obviously, uh, ashleychurch.com I believe is the, the spot to go check out and all things uh, commentary within the space oh I feel like I've taken a load off, a load off my chest like, oh I've got like, oh I'm glad you feel oh, so much better mate yeah no thanks, good it's mate. always good to cleanse yourself of these things so. <laughs> <laughs> alright love your work brother I'll see you soon I you appreciate too, it buddy. Talk soon. thanks bro peace oh what a good dude see you don't need to hate your competitors when they're good humans and you've just been a competitive you know bastard that's trying to take on everyone to do everything to try and be the best you don't need to you can be nice um so good insights into the into the resi world um obviously comes from a, a deep history within property in new zealand understand it and good insights I, I like the idea around um you know not necessarily that you shouldn't support but this idea of you know how do you you know teach men fish how do you how how can you unlock more of the entrepreneurial spirit and business to be able to uh, potentially do more so help more new zealanders get you know hashtag back in business whatever this thing may look like in the future so um good insights clearly old mate supports national i mean i knew that already but he, he was very um i, I actually appreciate it. he's just up front because at least he's consistent it's flipping great uh good work team i hope you enjoyed that one and i'll see you see you on the next um adios enjoy i'll see you soon stay safe stay smiling and i'll see you in a bit